0: Okay, so good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me tonight. This is the fourth edition of The Mic. This is a political conversation uh, dialogue show where you have the mic and we're so excited to have uh, this amazing panel uh, with us today. It's gonna be a great conversation. So without further ado, I'm gonna go ahead and start introducing uh, the members of this distinguished panel. So first I have Mr. Stephen Foster. Uh, Mr. Stephen Foster, is a retired AT&T Advertising Services Media Consultant and Accountant Executive and a former business analyst with Dunn and Street. He is now a freelance journalist and a blogger and interactive director of What They Should Say, a progressive nonprofit public policy advocacy and communications agency. Stephen has written several columns and articles for AL.com, Huntsville, Times, and Adventist Today and as the Huntsville liberal examiner for the previous examiner.com site. He is a graduate of Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama, and currently serves as a member of its board of trustees. Mr. Foster, we're so excited. I'm so excited to have you tonight, so thank you so much for being here. Next we have uh, Mr. Hunter Hartley. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Mr. Hunter Hartley, in his final year at, at Howard University School of Law, Hunter's work and background are focused on developing community infrastructure in Roanoke, Virginia. While his orientation is local, he recognizes the effect our national conversation has on his community and joins us today to speak from his perspective, doing work with food and housing security and um, reparative education and economics. And I can attest to Hunter's brilliance and his unique perspective, being able to share uh, some classes with him at Howard Law too. So Hunter, I'm so thankful to have you here too. Thanks for having me. Next we have uh, Ms. Rachel May. Rachel is a native Washingtonian who graduated from U- University of Michigan with a BA in psychology and a minor in Afro-American studies. Upon graduation, she joined uh, Teach for America where she taught first to third grade in Miami, Florida. She returned to DC where she continued her work in education, teaching kindergarten in a public charter school where she earned the, the award for excellence and teacher of the year. Now Rachel is studying towards her JD at Howard University School of Law. She spent her 1L summer working for the NAACP Office of the General Counsel, her 2L year as an Alternative Dispute Resolution Intern at the EEOC, and her 2L summer as a Summer Associate for Ebershed Sutherland DC Office. Rachel serves as the Secretary for the Education Law Society at Howard Law and looks forward to using her legal education to bettering the lives of children of color in her hometown and across the nation. Rachel, it's such an honor to have you be a part of this panel. So thank you for being a part of this.
1: Thanks, Mike. I'm glad to be here.
0: Tyrese, Tyrese Ford. Tyrese graduated magna cum laude from Southern Connecticut State University with a BA in psychology. As a student at Southern, Tyrese served as president of his university's NAACP chapter, interned at the Connecticut General Assembly, and later interned with Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Tyrese is also a recent graduate of Howard University School of Law. While at Hustle, he was a member of the CHH National Moot Court team, Charles Hamilton Houston National Moot Court team, participated in the Criminal law, the Criminal Justice Clinic which allowed him to defend persons charged with a criminal misdemeanor in DC Superior Court and an intern for a firm which allowed him to draft appellate briefs to overturn criminal convictions. Tyrese is also uh, my former mentor at Howard Law School. So it's a privilege and an honor to have Mr. Tyrese Ford with us here today. So thank you for joining us, Tyrese.
2: Thanks for having me, Mike. And I'm still your mentor. That would never change, so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> of course. And then we have uh, Ms. Dania Henry. I'm so, ha- I'm so thankful to have Dania with us too. Dania is a third year law student um, in the class of 2021 at Georgetown University. Law Center in Washington, DC. Dania enrolled in law school as a tool to serve marginalized communities, including low-income communities and communities of color. Dania's legal advocacy experience um, includes criminal justice reform, immigrants' rights, sexual assault victims of color, and health equity for boys and girls of color domestically and internationally. Dania has interned with groups like the ACLU, Healing Justice, Georgetown Law's Center on Poverty and Inequality, and International Women's Human Rights Clinic. Dania intends to continue her policy and legal advocacy domestically and internationally for marginalized communities after graduating law school. Dania, is such a, a, a privilege and honor to have you here. I know you're gonna bring a great perspective to this panel. I'm so excited to have you on.
3: Thank you, Mike.
0: Ms. Haley Johnson, Haley um, is a law, a law clerk in the Capitol trial bench east of the Kentucky Department of Public Advocacy, the statewide public defender's office. She holds a bachelor's degree in political science and a bachelor's in homeland security from both Eastern Kentucky University. She is a Howard Law graduate, class of 2020. While at Howard Law, she participated in the criminal justice clinic and received the Tamar Meekins Award for her advocacy for her clients. She has also interned with the federal public defender for the Middle District of Alabama, the orally Public Defender, the the Innocence Project, New Orleans, and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law. Her and her husband have one dog, and we're so happy to have Haley with us, too. Um, Haley, with all of your experience, I know it's going to be an even better panel. Um, Without further ado, let's just get right into it. Oh, I've got one more. Mr. for Anthony Mitchell. (laughs) Pleasure Pleasure to have you. Good to see you. I'm so excited to have you here good to see you too, man. And it's been a minute. Um, we actually served on Capitol Hill together in 2018 um, as interns. And without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and m- introduce uh, Mr. Anthony Mitchell. So Mr. Anthony Mitchell currently serves as the legislative assistant for Congressman David Scott um, of the 13th um, District of Georgia, he, and who's also Democrat, and advises on a several uh, He's, a, he's an advisor on several issues, including healthcare, education, uh, judiciary, defense, foreign affairs, and more. A native of New Orleans, Louisiana, Anthony has dedicated his time in and out of the office to battling the numerous injustices that have caused many traditionally marginalized groups to not feel heard, seen, or feel as though they have a voice at the decision making table. Anthony is the founder of Engage with Impact, a consulting agency centered around helping youth and young people reach personal and professional success through brand um, management, leadership skill building, and professional development. Also, Anthony serves on the board of directors for AMP Global Health Global Youth, which is an organization founded to amplify the story, voice, and power of global youth. Anthony, it's such a privilege to, and pleasure to have you i uh, join.
4: Hey, Thank you for uh, having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Of course. And I, I, I'll, also add, I'll also add that uh, Anthony also, I think you were an intern for Senator Bob Casey. Is that right?
4: Very briefly. Yes. Uh, okay. It was a great time, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a while since then.
0: Cool. All right, guys. So let's get right into it. Um, so I wanted to start off by talking about the Rust Belt and swing state polls. So through July 30th through August, um, Third, the Quinnipiac University poll released that in South Carolina, Biden's at 42%, Trump is at 47%. CNN reported today that a Mountmouth University, Iowa poll shows President Trump with 48% to Biden's 45%. This is a three point margin and a result with the poll's margin of error. Trump won Iowa by more than nine points in 2016. So this is significant because it's a, swing, a six point uh, shift to Biden. Uh, Real clear politics shows that Biden nationally is at 52% while President Trump is at 87%. Um, A new Franklin and Marshall College poll from Pennsylvania, um, and we know that Pennsylvania is a key state in this election, especially Rust Belt, um, has Biden at 50% and Trump at 41%. A mid-July Fox News poll uh, puts Biden's margin at 11 points and a Fox News poll uh, shows that among registered voters, the top issues are coronavirus, 29%, economy, 15%, race relations, 10%. This is interesting. A negative view of the president, Trump, 6% before healthcare, 5%. So without, I just wanna open up the conversation, uh, Mr. Foster, whenever we look at polls, especially on the program that you know I've started here, I always try to look at them in context of the larger picture. Um, there seems to be a trend. There seems to have been a trend going back since the outbreak of this pandemic and since so many things have been shut down. Um, so many people have had to be restricted to their homes. So many people have been laid off from work. So many people have, who have who are still employed have had to transfer to telework from their homes. Um, and there seems to be no national approach to this thing. Do you think that this COVID-19, and as long as this COVID-19 pandemic exists, that there'll continue to be a downward spiral for the Trump campaign in terms of the polling numbers? And do you think that's significant for the outcome of the election?
5: Yeah, and and please call me uh, Steve. (laughs) Uh, Yes, definitely. Um, You know, this uh, election uh, is probably um, going to be a referendum. Uh, And, uh, you know, we can see that Trump's mishandling of this Covid nineteen crisis has um, expo- exposed what what most people have seen throughout his presidency on, on a whole rain host uh, of in- of issues, but I, I uh, this this particular crisis is so uh, personal uh, in terms of we've had a hundred nearly hundred and sixty thousand fatalities so far, we've got. I think 4.5 million, 4, 4, 4.5 million cases. And uh, that's so that's probably just the tip of the iceberg of people who have actually who are actually infected uh, with the virus. And his mishandling is so egregious and so obvious uh, that, uh, you know, there, I don't see any way um, that he can shake this. I, I don't see any way that he can shake his mishandling of it it's 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 uh it's it should be clear to everybody and uh it's 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 just uh mind boggling how even in uh, some of these rust belt states that the that the race is close uh you know in, in some of these states that that uh obama has had carried I, I know obama carried iowa in 2008 um and but you know, i mean it's it's uh it's 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 going to be uh, interesting from here on out, but I, but I really believe that um, his mishandling has been so egregious that I don't I don't see any way for him to to uh, to, to shake loose. Yeah,
0: and uh, and as you were talking, um, I was thinking about you know 2016, yeah. and I was thinking about you know how much of a shock it was when Pennsylvania went in the Trump column because Clinton spent. $37,762,267 to Trump's $16,875,760,000. Uh, so she, Trump was way outspent in that state. The, state. the state was a key factor in terms of Obama's two previous victories. Um, and when that went, in addition to the Ohio and Florida, I just said to myself, there goes the neighborhood, because it looked as if there was no like the 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 pathway for Clinton was shrinking by the minute, um, but Rachel, I'm interested in your take. Do you think that yeah,
5: her failure to her failure to even I was going to say her failure to even appear in Wisconsin was right was the height of political ma- obviously. But, yeah, um,
6: yeah.
5: I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You are right because
0: along those lines. I know the Biden campaign, and I'm pretty sure those who are in his ear are pretty determined not to make that same mistake again. But I'm curious, Rachel, to get your take on whether you think, you know, the next four months in terms of polling trends would look like the previous think, eight months or seven months that we've already experienced in 2020.
1: Um, my, my my quick guess would be to say yes, that we're going to continue going in this direction. Um, I. I I don't want to say that I want to say, but I want to say that um, Biden's going to keep picking up momentum. Um, by the same token, I'm also concerned that uh, the folks that are going to be diehard Trumpers, the folks that are not going to change their mind are who they are. And they're, they're stuck in the mud and that's not changing. So really what we're looking at is whether or not um, a very key, very small demographic of people is willing to change their mind or if they're not changing their mind, if they're still on the fence, if they're, if they're going to lean in one direction or another. I uh, read recently that in the last election, the vast majority of Trump supporters were um, uneducated or college uneducated, uh, white working class individuals, citizens. And um, that, that number is shifting as well. Even those numbers are starting to shift more towards Biden as we see how the pandemic is unfolding, as we see how healthcare is being handled, as we see how education and the Department of Education is handling going back to school or not going back to school in many cases. Um, I think that working class Americans are trying to figure out what's gonna happen to them on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis. And if the president can't come up with a better answer than we're doing great, don't worry, we're doing fine, then we're gonna see the polls continue to lean towards Biden.
6: And something happened today uh, that
0: I got, I got a little excited about, to be honest. Professor Alan Lickman of uh, American University in DC, who has these 13 keys to predicting who's going to be the winner of every election going back to 1984, came out with a prediction yesterday. And these keys include whether or not there's an economic crisis, whether or not there's been a foreign policy, a foreign uh, success, or whether or not there's a uh, charismatic challenger. Well, because of this coronavirus, three of those keys turned in the favor of Biden. Causing him to predict that Trump will lose this November. Mind you, this professor has never been wrong for elections going. He even predicted that Trump will be impeached before that happens. So, Hunter, I know you know this is speculation, and I know you know we're talking about certain trends that could potentially continue based on the way this year has gone so far. But you know, with your experience, you know, and especially with your experience watching elections, um, do you see? any way for Trump to kind of turn the tide? Is there a way for him to kind of reverse his fortune? Um, And if so, what do you think that is?
7: Uh, I I certainly do. Um, I think, so I think one of the things that stood out to me with the last election cycle had to do with um, people actually showing up and participating in the voting process. And so I think that there's a huge question mark that we have right now. because showing up to vote is a problem. Uh, it's something that a lot of people are going to experience issues with because of uh, polling places being closed down and what appears to be very clear attempts at voter disenfranchisement. Um, issues that are more related to than just the uh, unique elements that we're experiencing right now with the COVID pandemic. Um, so in, in that sense, yeah, I, I see a number of very clear paths forward. Uh, again, you know, I don't want to speculate as to how things will go, but I would say that there's no certainty in my mind as to where things will land. And, you know, I, I try to engage with a lot of diverse members of my community and there are plenty of people who are still, you know, college educated, very, very invested in, and are able to articulate reasons why they're still going to vote for Trump. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think it's good to not underestimate that in terms of taking, uh taking the temperature of what's going on, so to speak for America right now. Um, and also look at possibly the the implications of that, because if we do end up with another four years of a federal government that doesn't seem capable of effectively responding, or maybe better to say coherently and cogently responding, um, we'll probably see a large shift in terms of how the governing structures um, that we're most familiar with end up being prioritized in terms of how we approach uh, civil society, so states and uh, you know the, the idea of federalism will probably have a resurgence in how we start to engage politically and locally um so i'm I'm more interested in what what that outcome might be than necessarily predicting who's going to be president but i would I would certainly not pull any punches right now and say that one person's going to win over another um, i I don't see the air being that clear. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and as you were speaking, you know, I was thinking of the states that seem to be the determining states this year: Wisconsin, um, Florida, Pennsylvania, and I was even in the polling. You know, the polling in those in these states, even where Trump is ahead, like in Texas. I think last month he was up by one percent, which is wild for Texas. Um, North Carolina, my home state. Um, you know, it was virtually tied between the two of them. I'm wondering if, you know, in the coming weeks we're going to have conventions because this pandemic has forced everything into the virtual realm. This pandemic, I mean, this, this, this DNC is going to be virtual, which I'm interested to see how this is going to be played out. But Dania, being that, you know, it seems like, for instance, in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Biden's up by nine. In Michigan, um, he's up by 11. Do you think the conventions that usually result in a convention bump, do you think that convention bump would, would still be there? Or do you think because you know everything has been more virtual, it doesn't have the same kind of effect
6: and therefore things will be relatively unchanged? Yeah, that's a good question, Mike.
3: Um, I think especially considering that uh, responses to this pandemic are so politicized I think even just um you know getting funding for uh the conventions from different donors is is politicized at this point um depending on whether or not they decide to go uh virtual um or have some sort of in person um option but before I go too deeply into that, I wanted to um comment on something that Hunter said that i uh, really agreed with um when he was saying that uh you know, we can't underestimate the amount of people who may actually end up voting for Trump um, in the election. Um, I was looking at the uh, post report from 2016 and um, amongst the flaws that were um, found in the polling, uh, um, two things that stood out to me was, um, the first um, improper weighting of Um, less educated white voters, which actually ended up making a a huge difference in 2016. And then the second one is um, underestimating the amount of people who would end up voting for Trump that um, in polling indicated otherwise. And I think especially now when we're seeing such egregious um, behavior by uh, the current occupant of the White House, um, I think that there are a lot of people um, in the Republican Party who are. Embarrassed by it, but who are so loyal to the party lines that, that they are going to end up voting for Trump in the fall, even if they may say otherwise. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But um, I just wanted to highlight that because I definitely don't think that at this point, it's easy to say either way what's going to happen. I think everything, especially because of the coronavirus impact, is just so unpredictable right now.
0: That's a really good point because as you were speaking, I was thinking about the the 1960 election when Nixon won, and that was kind of when the term silent majority was coined, because <laughs> there was a, a a funny quote from American, an American film critic, and she said, I can't believe Nixon won. I don't know anyone who voted for him. And so there was this kind of feeling that everyone was just quietly going into the voting booths, voting for this guy without disclaim, without disclosing who they're voting for. And it, was very much parallel to 2016. I think my big surprise was that I didn't even entertain the thought of, of Trump winning, to be honest with you. And I um, at the time, that was, that was my senior year in college, and I was interning or working with the uh, Alabama Madison County Democrats. And one of the coordinators for the, uh, for the group had said the same thing. She said, the thought of Clinton not being president never registered in my mind. And you know that I think has everyone on their p's and q's now because everyone's more cautious, and that kind of plays into why 2020 is such a different race than it was in 2016. In addition to the pandemic and all of the other things, you know, the social unrest um, that we're also experiencing. Haley, I'm interested in getting your perspective as to whether or not you think the silent majority, or if there is a silent majority vote out there, that polling is not taking into consideration and are we in for a big surprise um, in November?
8: So I would like to make a comment about uh, what we just talked about in that um, I'm not sure that with the conventions happening if it's going to be here or there Um, and the reason I go back to that is because I was watching uh, political scientists talk about how you know through this uh, pandemic you know everyone's been missing sports but they're not really missing like the dnc convention or the rnc convention um and how it's kind of placed in the summer where people aren't quite into paying attention to the election wholly yet right so the people that are really into it like us like we're paying attention but like the late common person is they don't probably care like they're not really into it yet and so i think that like um, with, with this like silent majority, I think that there's potential for it to be there, but honestly, like there's potential for it to go either way. And I say that because people who are responding to polls, um, are people who like have access to computers and are really interested in it right now and really want their voice to be heard. Um, at the end of the day, I'm not sure that I've ever really taken like more than a handful of polls um, to say, well, what I may, may do in the future. Um, and two, with like the campaigning and everything that's going on. And, you know, we're so early on that Biden hasn't announced his running mate yet. Like those things have the potential to swing someone to the complete opposite side for the people that are in the middle. You know, there's some people that's gonna vote for Biden no matter who he picks. There's the people that's gonna vote for Trump no matter what's going on there. And so I think that it's something to be cautious of and to keep in mind, but that it could potentially go anyway.
0: That's a good point. Because you know, there are those folks that would vote for they've they've got you know their candidate already made up in their mind. And so the question really is you know, those who held their nose and kind of did it because they're traditionally conservative or they did it because of traditionally conservative issues. Would they be willing to see the state that we're in this, you know, it's kind of like a mixed matched approach to this uh, health crisis, um, the social unrest, not to mention that even before COVID-19, there seemed to be just a series of crisis or scandal after one after the other, because remember the big, the big story before this was impeachment. And then before impeachment was, um, I remember, you know, the House blue wave in 2018 where Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are sitting in the Oval Office with Trump and they're going back and forth with each other. And there just seems to be one story after the other. It seems as if things have just been moved in hyper mode um, in, in American politics right now. Anthony, um, I know that you've had experience, you know, interacting with constituents of Pennsylvania, working with Senator Casey, um, you know, and then you've gone on to have other experiences that have put you in the forefront of so many um, different perspectives, uh, people in the middle of the road. So my question is, you know, for those people in the middle of the road, do you really see them, you know, the folks who are honestly just they they're voting based on their pocketbook, they're voting based on you know their own self interests. They're not really politically engaged as as you know we may be or politically intuned. But you know when they when they vote, they're voting self interest. Do you see those people really uh, making the same decision they did in 2016, or do you see them more willing uh, to be able to vote with someone like Biden?
4: Yeah. So that's that's a really good question, Mike. Before I answer that question, I just want to say you know everything that everybody else has said, I completely agree with, especially with the current situation we find ourselves in with the pandemic, right? People, uh, and this is going to lead into my answer a little bit, people are particularly more politically engaged now because of the health crisis, because of the economic crisis that we find ourselves in because of the pandemic and high unemployment numbers and all those things. And on top of that, we have the social and civil unrest of, you know, folks saying enough is enough, right? And so, when you're dealing with that triple pandemic, I think we are underestimating just how many people are tuned in to say, hey, look, something's gotta happen in November, you know? And, and we gotta mobilize our folks, right? And this, you know, talking to Dems for people who are looking for uh, Biden to take over the current administration. We gotta mobilize our folks and we can't rest on our laurels. I think one of the things that, you know, uh, we thought was going to be uh, a shoe in was Hillary Clinton. And we kind of just banked on that and say, you kind of led to this a little bit yourself with the anecdote you gave that we never considered a Trump presidency because like this guy is just so far out of the box of what we see for a president that, you know, it's just not going to happen. Fast forward to now, here we are in the midst of a global pandemic, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how are folks going to put food on the table? How are folks going to be able to get a job because they got furloughed or they lost their job or they were a gig employee? Uh, and how are we going to, you know, navigate this posture that we're in? Right. Which is doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime soon. So um, at the end of the day, I think what folks are asking themselves is, "Will my family, will I will everybody that's connected to me be better off in a Biden administration? You know, uh, we've seen what's going on with uh, the current administration, you know, and even something that's more recent, like moving information gathering from CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the government apparatus for dealing with a global pandemic or a national crisis, you know, cutting them off at the knees and streamlining that data going to HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services. I mean, you know, things like that we see are not going to work for folks, right? In responding to what's going on. Uh, And so for me, I think a lot of folks and a lot of people that I've been privy enough to talk to are saying, you know, people are really starting to see that, you know, that buyer's remorse that they mentioned early on, that's starting to get a little bit more uh, ramped up as we examine what exactly has President Trump really done for us, right? You know, uh, and a lot of people are worse off than when we started off. And so, uh, and that's not to, 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 you know, discount the folks who are you know, hard start Republicans and conservatives, and they want to, you know, stick to their party. I get that. But a lot of people that are in the middle of the road, they're saying, you know what? Let's give this Biden guy a try and see if that administration is going to be better off than where I am now.
0: As you're talking, I was thinking of a date in mind October 28, 1980. Reagan asks the American people, are you better off? than you were four exactly. years ago. Ironically, that's my birthday. <laughs> but um, Tyrese, I know we had our disagreements when you were on the Yang Gang um, <laughs> back in 2019, during the primaries was still going on in 2020. Um, I was for Biden before Biden even got in the race in April, April 25th. And Tyrese and I were talking one time, and he said, well, who are you going to vote for? And I said, Biden. He said, no, <laughs> no, why? <laughs> But I'm interested in getting your take Would someone like Biden, who's more of a moderate have had a better chance, like in retrospect, now that we're, we're in August, uh, looking back at, you know, the primary season, I know you support a different candidate and everything. Do you think that if we had gone with a more, uh, idealistic uh, choice like Bernie Sanders or Warren, do you think that we would have had as much of a chance of winning now or better or worse I'm interested in getting your take. I know I had some conversations with some folks on this, and I personally agree i I, I think that a moderate would have been the safest bet because I think that with two polar opposites, folks are going to go with it, what they know, and what they know at this moment is Trump. But I'm interested in getting your take your take on this
2: No, I mean, yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think that uh, the Democratic Party made a smart decision by uh, you know going with Biden um when i was speaking with you during you know like the primary debates when i was you know yang gang i always knew that yang wasn't you know gonna win the nomination but i liked his ideas he was a newcomer he had some really good ideas and i think he brought something to the conversation and i wanted him to you know remain on the debate stage and kind of you know push the other candidates up there to adopt him but some of his ideas and uh, some of them did, some of them didn't, uh, but I do think that uh, the Democratic Party, you know, going with Biden made uh, the smart decision because, as you said, if someone like, you know, Bernie Sanders would have won the nomination, the, you know, the middle-in-the-road voter would have said, or, well, yeah, the middle-in-the-road voter would have said, hey, I don't like this guy, you know, Trump, but I cannot get with, I cannot support Bernie Sanders. So, I mean, I totally agree with you Uh, before, you know, we move on. I just also want to say that the 2016 election was the first election after which Shelby uh, versus Holder was decided. And in that case, the Supreme court basically gutted the voting rights act. So yes, voter turnout is super important. It it is super important, Uh, but I mean, we, But we see after Shelby versus Holder, we see so many polling locations just closed down. Um, And even now polling locations are, you know, some of them are at police stations. So it's like we can't, we can't, you know, forget that fact. And we have to bring that into into the conversation too. When, when we uh, when we talk about the two, the uh, the, uh that's a really good point
0: and for those who may be watching and may not know what section five is i know everyone on the panel may be familiar section five of the voting rights act required that states that had a history of discrimination had to uh file with the uh, attorney general's office to get any kind of change to their state voting law approved but now that that's removed it's kind you know the floodgates are open in terms of what kind of uh, tactics States can now use um, such as voter ID laws, um, restricting same day registration, all of these things that cause backlog and, and the lines that we see, for, uh, for instance, in Georgia in 2018, um, in Atlanta. I know I just moved to Georgia this week, and that's one of the things I'm worried about. I'm worried about, you know, when it's time for me to vote, would I have to stay in a long line that I don't have time to wait in? Um, and so, you know, those things, Tyrese, thank you for bringing that up. That It's very important uh, because when we're talking about all these things, the key thing, the, the, the bedrock of all of these things is, is the fact that it depends on voter turnout. Um, you know, so I want to transition to being that we're talking about polls, we're talking about what voters are thinking about, their approaches and everything. I know that the Trump campaign has decided to revamp its advertisement campaign. It seems as if n- nothing's really sticking in terms of how they're trying to portray Biden. It started off with, he's he's not all the way there. He's senile. That's That was kind of the thing that they tried to get at. But then you have Trump going out in the Rose Garden, arguing with reporters, uh, advocating for injecting bleach and light into your body. Um, and so the campaign scratching its head now, and they're trying to say, well, Biden is too liberal. And so I know that I saw an ad where, you know, an old woman, looks defenseless and, 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 and you know you feel sorry for her and the phone is ringing and the phone is on hold. And he's saying that Biden wants to abolish the police. Now Biden came out as a moderate and said, I'm against abolishing, I mean, yeah, abolishing the police. Um, so it seems as if the messaging that he had in 2016 is not as strong this year. Um, Clinton was, it seemed, a much easier opponent for him to run against than Biden. And it seemed as if he, he just has a problem running against someone who fits probably the same description of him on paper. Professor, um, Mr. Foster, I'm sorry, Mr. Foster, do you have like any take on that? Do you think that, um, and I call you Professor, his, his brother was my professor. So that's why I just, yeah. But do you have any perspective on whether or not, you know, Trump's messaging or his remapping? Uh, would be as effective. And if he's out, I'm going to go ahead and bounce to um, Hunter.
7: Yeah, um, I think that it could be quite effective. Um, And I think I think a large part of what um, what a lot of voters or what a lot of people in general engage with, um, you know, we we like to I'm sure everyone here, uh, myself included, we like to think of ourselves as reasonable, rational people. We like to look at data. We like to look at information. We want to look at the law. We want to understand it. But a lot of how we actually engage is based on, you know, millions of years, billions of years of evolution that got us here. There's a lot of fight and flight that goes on. There's a lot of mental shortcuts. Our, our brains are hardwired to make mental shortcuts because it's effective for how we live in the world. And it's effective for success up until a point where we live in a very different world today than we've necessarily, you know, evolved for. And for that reason, however, there's there's this attachment that we have to narratives. And so when I look at some of the advertisements, uh, I one of the recent ones um, was it, it's, it's like the, the members of the squad and Biden's there and they're like, oh, he's he's radical like them. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's a very successful narrative. The, you can ask people, well, what do you think about and name a member of the squad? Oh, you know, they hate America. They're terrorists. They're not even Americans. You can get some responses that are that are just based upon a narrative. They're not rooted necessarily in, you know, someone taking a step back, saying, let me do a factual analysis. Let me do my research. They're rooted in how we instead share understand. about ourselves and what we value and our identity. So I think seeing some of these advertisement campaigns, which are really trying to to latch onto that notion of who am I and what am I emotionally willing to support, I think those can be very, very
6: successful. You're muted, Mike. Sorry about that. So, <laughs> so I'm gonna go ahead and bounce to, um
0: I'm gonna bounce to Anthony again. Um, I'm curious in getting your take again on, you know, because in addition to that, Biden campaign has NBC reported that you're going to be dedicating $280 million in the final stretch. Uh, I mean, right. And I think $220 million are going into television ads and the $60 million is going into digital advertising. Mm-hmm. The idea behind that is, you know, $220 million is going to reach more people, senior people who are used to getting their political news on TV, political advertisements, than younger people who get their news on um, you know, through Facebook, social media platforms like Instagram, um, other things like that. Um, Do you think that's effective um, going into these final months? Or do you think that Trump possibly getting a message somehow, some way against the Biden campaign would kind of put Trump on the edge?
4: Yeah. uh, And that's a very, very good question. Uh, And I know Haley and Tyrese probably have thoughts here. So uh, we happen to welcome them into the conversation as well. But uh, for me, I think... I've ran a couple campaigns on the local and state levels, uh, and you have to you have to do the television advertisements, right? And you have to cast a wide net. But where I think that there is more opportunity for the campaign is to, you know, invest a little bit more in the digital platforms. Um, we are shifting into a more largely uh, connected digital media space, right? you know, outside of social media, you know, websites, websites, advertisement, even if you get an advertisement on, you know, Hulu or Netflix or LinkedIn or things like that, you know, you want to make sure that you're, you're not leaving out the, those demographics, which are typically skewing younger, typically skewing more educated or more savvy, right? And when you think about the tech inclined people, right? And, and those are pockets of people that you just can't afford to discredit this discount. But I'm curious to hear Tyrese and Haley's thoughts as they uh, are pondering this question as well.
0: Tyrese, Haley.
8: I would just say that um, to comment on both Anthony's point and Hunter's point, um, when you think about the that particular ad that you were talking about with the elderly white lady who is at home and it's the middle of the night and she's just watching TV, I thought that that ad was actually really, really smart on the Trump campaign's side because it reinforces everything that they're standing for because they're trying to say Biden's going to defund the police, which we just discussed, that's not his goal. But um, it's reinforcing fear. And fear is a very heavy emotion. And when you mix that into the game, like everyone who is a younger person who was already swinging that way they're like exactly and people who and i've had conversations with many many people on the other side who can't understand what it means when you say defend the police um it's reinforcing that and i can tell you right now from experience i worked in a 911 call center we're not putting you on hold we're not, like people are not going to not be there not answering your phone calls so I think it was smart. I think it reinforces like those negative feelings that people already have, like whatever small, big, whatever they are towards Biden um, and reinforces the fear that they have that something's gonna happen to them, especially with, you know, the way that, you know, all of these protests and things are being conveyed. Um, So I would say that for one. And then for two, um, a few minutes ago, you made a comment about Um, Ronald Reagan and that quote and the um, Republicans that are against Trump, they have their own little ad campaign going on too. Um, One of their ads that I watched is the whole um, speech of Reagan's. And it's literally overlaid with all of these videos of what's happened during Trump's administration. That's essentially going against everything that Reagan has said. And so for those people who are Republican and who abide by the Republican values, they don't value Trump because they're out here saying like, don't vote for him. They're not overtly saying, hey, vote for Biden, but they're definitely saying like, he's not standing for what our party's for, so I don't think you should vote for him. So I just wanted to point those couple of things out.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed that out. There is a different factor in this race that I don't think we've seen before, and that is the Lincoln Project factor. The Lincoln Project and Bush Forty Three alumni and other Republican groups who have decided to come together, put their resources together, um, their creativity together, and come up with these ads. I think that Republicans personally make better counterpunchers than Democrats, and so when they put these ads out, it hits it right on the target. The Biden ads are decent, but when they put out their ads, I. I Tyrese, <laughs> what is your opinion um, as to the, you know, the messaging or the, you know, the change in message for the Trump campaign um, and the Lincoln project factor? There is a, an ad out there that said, know their names. And you see the names of senators, current senators who they say have enabled Trump for these past four years. And the names in big bold letters come up on the screen. And I think that has a psychological impact because the people who may not know particularly who these people are, just by looking at the picture, they'll see that name and then when they're in the voting booth, they'll see that name again. Tyrese?
2: So when it comes to the Trump campaign restarting its ad campaign, I think, I personally think it's a smart move to basically equate Biden uh, with the squad or, you know, the left leaning faction of the Democratic Party, because I think, as Hunter said, uh, when those voters see Biden, they'll see AOC, they'll see uh, uh, Rep. Omar. Uh, so I mean, I think that might play. Uh, I think I think that might uh, factor into you know their decision. However, I mean, I think COVID. I think COVID and how the president and the Republican Party um, actually responds to this pandemic, to this crisis, will have a, a, a even more of an impact. Uh, to sway uh, their votes. Because, I mean, we see people like AOC and Omar and like in their left leaning uh, faction of the Democratic Party, they want to put more money into people's hands. They want to uh, basically uh, put a moratorium on evictions. So, I mean, I think Republican voters or independents or unaffiliated voters, they might see that and they might say, hey, Biden, uh, equating Biden, Biden with you know, this faction might be a good thing. Uh, but also, when it comes to the Lincoln Project, I just want to, you know, ask, and do Republican voters even, do they even care, in a sense? It's like, are they just with Trump, or do they actually care about what the the former Republican Party actually stands for? You know what I mean? It's like, when I think of, of the Republican Party, I think of, you know, smaller government, tax cuts, but there's still an ounce of, you know, respect and morality and the things that they do. I can't say the same thing for the Republican Party of today. So even though the Lincoln Project and their ads are very good, I mean, and that Reagan ad, that was, that was magnificent. But I mean, but the question remains, will the Republican voters care? I mean, we see, you know, Lindsey Graham make a complete 180 um, and how he talks about Trump and deals with Trump, um, as compared to uh, when he was uh, president. I'm sorry, uh, uh, running in the presidential election. So it's like we see these Republican senators and uh, Republican representatives just basically get on the Trump wave, uh, for better or for worse. Well, for worse, in my opinion. Um, and I think that, and, and I and I think that they made that shift. Because that's what their constituents wanted. Sadly, uh, they, you know, they don't have they don't have a backbone. But yeah.
0: And um, it's very interesting because one of my fears with Bernie Sanders, even though I agree with him on you know a lot of his ideas and everything, and ideologically, he was a great candidate and everything. I was afraid that the folks that I knew from my internship, and I say this all the time in North Carolina, that I would hear around the water cooler talking politics, would portray him and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, and Helen Omar, Rashida Tlaib as one and the same. And you know that was kind of part of my hesitation to support a candidate like that because I knew that that could possibly have a down ballot effect in that, you know, p- people typically would go in the voting booth and vote for, you know, the party all the way down the line to Senate, Congress, you know, all the way down to uh, city council, you know, to local elections. And so I was wondering, you know, in light of the fact that AOC herself said, if we were in a part a, a multi-party system, she probably would not even be in the same party with Biden. Um, I'm wondering, you know, if the messaging is as successful to try to portray Biden as this liberal, to me, it seems as if the voters, according to these polls now, and of course the polls, you know, they could be misleading, as in twenty sixteen. But it seems the voters are buying this idea that Biden is one of those folks, and it's kind of hard to see. I know. You know, people I know who are my age—they're upset that Biden was the nominee because they wanted somebody more liberal, they wanted somebody more progressive, more splashy. So it's kind of hard for me to see Biden portrayed in that light successfully. Uh, Mr. Foster, are you on? Can you hear us? Can you hear me?
5: Yeah, I'm on now. Finally, Uh, it's practically the entire show. I'm sorry, this connection (laughs) is terrible. But that's uh, fine. Yeah. yeah, but Biden, you know, we, we are in an emergency. The House is on fire. And that's the only reason why Biden was basically selected uh, by the African-American community. Uh, the older people in the African-American community uh, basically chose Biden um, by bailing in South Carolina and uh, and and in the other Super Tuesday states. Uh because the house is on fire, we can't. We could not. I'm speaking for myself. I just felt like we could not nominate uh, someone uh, who was who was uh, self-described as a as a as a socialist. Even though I agree with him on practically every single issue, uh, but he's a, he was uh, Bernie was a self-described socialist, and all of the young guys uh the seth moldens and the uh eric swalwells and people like that you know they never they never had any name recognition so they never had a shot but that would have been the ideal uh, for us to nominate a um you know just a a plain uh guy with with no uh, baggage a new face a fresh new face uh i i preferred michael bennett from uh, colorado personally uh, but they, they never had a they never had a shot with the, with the way the uh, primary systems are are are, uh, are set up uh, so that if you don't have any name recognition going in, it's hard to establish any name recognition. And Pete Buttigieg pretty much took all the oxygen out of the room uh, for new fate as far as new faces are concerned. So, you know, Biden is a placeholder and he is a uh, uh, he, he recognizes he's a bridge to the future but we have to put out the fire that the, the house is on fire. I mean, this, this Trump thing is, a, is, is an emergency. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, you uh, basically said earlier, uh, the, the one thing I, one of the few things I did hear earlier is that you said that the, this, the stakes are higher in this election than in any of your, in your lifetime. Well, they're higher in any of my lifetime. And I've been voting since 1972. This is, you know, we are, we are, we are uh, going to have a referendum on whether we will continue as a constitutional democracy,
6: uh, a republic or not. I mean, if Trump yeah. gets reelected, they're having each. You know he will be accountable to nobody, nothing. I mean, he he's barely accountable now. Will be uh, if he if he somehow gets real fucked they're all the economy is has cratered and and everybody knows it after Hey, Mike, if I can jump in for a second, Um, I think I would want to
4: go back to Tyrese's million-dollar question, which is, do Republicans care right now? And I think it was really smart on the Democratic Party to go with a Biden right now, as opposed to somebody who's far, far progressive, because as Steve mentioned a little bit, um, he's the opportunity to be a bridge, right? And he's going to be the one if they're gonna be more likely to vote for as opposed to an AOC or Bernie Sanders, uh, because he is more closely to what they identify with, right? You know, and and, and it's, going, it's going back to what you said earlier, like if there are two polar opposites, where are you gonna go with the safe bet? The one that you already know, which is likely gonna be another Trump repeat. So in terms of trying to get folks that are not already on the deep side, or who are in the middle, or he, who are might even on the R side, you know, on the conservative side, you know, Biden's going to be the guy, right? Because he has a little bit more appeal to folks that aren't, you know, uh, uh, already in the camp. And arguably, you know, I see Rachel nodding her head because I, see, I know she probably has thoughts too.
0: Um,
6: but he, he's probably the guy. Dania, I'm interested in getting your perspective on this. Yeah. So um,
3: one thing I think is interesting about this messaging of um, Biden as like beholden to the um, the radical left um, is there's three things. So first, um, it makes me think of a trip I took to um, a country in Africa. We were researching. Um, pretty conservative issue abortion. Um, And it makes me think about the role that um, signaling either by voters or by um, a politician to each other um, plays in elections. And so um, it makes me think about in um, that country, we were doing um, like a fact finding trip and and interviewing um, some pretty high up officials and then also uh, interviewing lay people to understand why there hadn't been any progress um around reproductive justice considering that they had the country had ratified um almost every um human rights treaty (laughs) that's out there um and so we were interviewing these people trying to figure out where the disconnect is and we were finding that a lot of the lay people including Um, religious leaders, um, chiefs, uh, school teachers, um, uh, doctors, nurses, we found that um, a lot of the people wanted there to be um, more liberal laws around um, access to safe abortion because they were seeing how making it illegal and making it um, inaccessible was causing uh, young women to die because they were still doing it, but just unsafely behind closed doors. Um, and then when we would talk to the um, those who were in office, they were would say they absolutely agree that something needs to be done, but they weren't doing anything because um, vocally, Religious leaders, even the ones who, behind closed doors, agree that abortion should be legalized, vocally were saying this is a sin; it should never be legalized. And that kind of signaling then caused fear among um, church members and other people who, in terms of culture and in terms of um, you know social pressure, were afraid to speak out and say this is something that should be um, should be passed. And then in turn. Um, elected officials want to stay in office. And so what they're hearing is that it should not be legalized. And so they're not legalizing it, although that they have a human rights obligation to do so. Um, And so what that makes me think of in terms of um, this election period is Trump using these um, ads that kind of speak to the radical left as being inappropriate and um, causing more harm than good to especially, who he's portraying as vulnerable vulnerable groups. In this case, it's um, an older white woman, and that's a very specific call out to his base. Um, it's signaling to them that it's okay to vote for him because he's going to protect their interests. Um, and it goes back to exactly what Haley was saying about fear being such a powerful tool. But what it also does is for moderates who are kind of on the fence, but who would, um, if there was enough social pressure, you know, go with things like reallocating police funds and giving it back to the community, which is exactly what defunding the police is about. It makes those moderate people who would vote for Biden or who would vote for someone more progressive like Bernie, um, it makes them rethink and it makes them think about the culture and how they will be portrayed if they outwardly um, support a candidate or support an issue such as um, defunding the police. Um, And so my first point is, is just the role that signaling plays. And then that leads into my second point, which is why, um, especially those who are young, need to get out and vote. And I know that when there's a candidate like Biden, um, who sometimes doesn't feel like he's much better than Trump, you have to think in terms of a larger perspective, because it's not just about the, the presidency. It's about who gets appointed. It's about who will respect the rules of engagement that have been in place for so long. Um, and so, you know, when we're trying to push for these progressive issues, if we're not getting out and voting and signaling to elected officials that it's safe to you know, outwardly say I support this issue or to pass certain legislation, then instead what they're going to do is get in office and not really do anything. And then now you're frustrated and don't wanna vote. Um, and then my last point was just, um, the, I think that a lot of times um, current, right now in terms of the 2016 election and then now, um, we've been kind of underestimating the role that identity um, and social groups play in how you vote. And so um, with the example of the country in Africa that I was researching in, um, the role that a church in your church circle will play in how you end up voting, even if you agree with something liberal like reproductive justice or the role that your um, classmates will play and whether or not you vote for Trump or whether or not you vote for Biden. And I think the same goes true for those who are on the left. It's not just for those who are on the right. For those who are on the left, um, it can create a lot of pressure to vote for someone who's more progressive and then to not vote for Biden because he's not progressive enough. And so I think that um, what we're especially seeing right now is um, for the um, the DNC, there needs to be a, a very large focus um, and a lot more digital marketing um, in terms of uh, pulling in that younger voter base and really um, leveraging those social circles that really have an impact on who you will end up voting for in the election.
0: Thanks for bringing up those points, Ania. because I know that you know Trump put out a tweet recently saying Biden wants to uh, destroy your suburbs. And recently the um, uh, Housing and Urban Development um, Department under Trump has revoked an Obama-era policy that was aimed at diversifying suburbs. And it just goes to this bigger story. It seems like this year is a combination of all three candidates from 1968. You've got Trump being Hubert Humphrey because he's the incumbent. You've got him being Nixon because he's promising a return to normalcy uh, in terms of what that would mean for taking back regulations like this Obama policy that would diversify Mm -hmm. uh, suburbs. And then the George Wallace fact, I won't, won't, that goes without me, George Wallace, but Mr. Foster, while I have you on, uh, I wanna get your take on that. Do you see this you know, messaging or you know, Trump being a combination of all three 68 campaign uh, candidates uh, working to his benefit, like doubling down on this kind of race politics or kind of uh, identity politics as
6: Dania pointed out? And if he's out, I'm going to go ahead and bounce to Rachel.
1: Um, I'll go ahead and, and hop in. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. He's he's pandering to race politics. He's using that to his advantage. I think, I mean, so being trapped in the house for a pandemic was a small part of the pressure that led to the explosion that happened after George Floyd was murdered on film, Um and everything that's kind of carried on since then has been a long time coming and a long time cooking on both on both sides, right? Um, so he, he's using that, that same fear that Haley talked about to, to, to rile folks up and let them know like, yeah, change is coming, but I'm the only way to stop it if that's what you want to happen. If you look at this new round of campaign ads that he put out, um, he, I think he took the entire week off of campaign ads last week so that he could kind of re-strategize. And the two campaigns that he's he's gone with one of them is um, a woman who's sitting. She's not speaking, and she's doing the whole cue card thing, where you read your cue cards, and it, it's her just saying how fearful she is. She's scared for her children. She's scared for the future. I can't. I can't even speak. I'm so scared. At the end of the at the end of all of the slides, um, and then I think if we go back to the other one where you you know you're worried about 911 in the suburbs. Looks like I'm cut out again. Have I cut out too? You're in. Okay. I'm, okay. Um, if you, if you look at the the original ad that he put out about, you know, 911 in the suburbs and, and, you know, you're not going to be able to be able to get in touch with, with police if you need them or to get emergency services, if you need them. The entire point is to keep people scared, keep people confused, keep people from using those higher cognitive functions that Hunter talked about. Uh, we developed after all these years of evolution and to keep people stuck in. I don't want anything different because this is the only thing that I'm comfortable with. At the end of the day, our identities absolutely weigh into what is important to us, what our values are, um, what we're going to be voting on. But I think the Trump campaign so far has done a great job of just harping on whatever changes you think are coming, whatever all these newfangled progressive folks say that you need to be worried about. Don't think about that. Your identity is safe. Your lifestyle is safe. Nothing will change as long as you stick with me. But if you go with that guy, I can't help you.
0: Yeah. And, and along those lines, as we transition to the next thing, I want to talk about the, you know, VP pick possibly that Biden's going to um, choose in the coming days. You know, we're in a period of a lot of racial unrest with the police brutality incidents with George Floyd. Before that was Ahmaud Arbery um, and other folks, Breonna Taylor um, and other um, individuals who um, my mind, you know, I can't think of their names right now. But there's so many, you know, the fact that there's so many incidents in such a uh brief period of time um, seems to have added to the stress that you know folks are feeling on the opposite side of those who are feeling fearful, fearful of their suburbs and their way of life. Um, So the VP choice comes into this context where you got folks saying, well, it's it's necessary for him to choose an African American woman, because doing so will show that he's listening to movements like the Black Lives Matter movement. Another who are advocating for serious police change or serious kind of racial uh, equality. Um, on the flip side, you have people um, who are saying, well, traditionally you, the, the nominee chooses someone who can compliment him politically, demographically, uh, you know, who can reach a base he can't reach. Um, I'm interested in getting your takes on who you think would be a great VP pick for uh, former Vice President Biden. And what they would bring to the table. Um, why would they be uh, a great pick in terms of you know increasing his chances in November? Um, I'm gonna go ahead and disclose
6: what my choice is, and I know I'm gonna get
7: it seems we lost Mike. Does someone else want to step in and uh, give a response, though, and talk about VP picks?
4: You don't, you're, you don't want to do it, Hunter?
2: <laughs> no. Well, no, I'll, uh, well, I'll go. So oh, OK. Go think, ahead, Anthony.
4: Uh, Tyrese, I, I don't want to be hugging Mike, but I'll just say real quickly, uh, uh, I think that what Mike was saying and alluded to earlier about someone complimenting him politically, I mean, we've seen Kamala Harris in final talks, we've seen Karen Bass in, uh, in, in on the short list and those who both compliment him um, uh, politically because they're both much more progressive than he is. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, and you have folks like a Tammy Duckworth, Senator Tammy Duckworth from Illinois, who's a veteran who can help get some of that Midwest uh, uh, voter base that he desperately needs, because he's, you know, on, on a coast, we definitely need folks that are in the, in the Bible Belt, the Red Belt, <coughs> the Midwest, to say, hey, look, Trump,
5: He's talking about VPs? Yeah, we're
4: talking about VPs. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Uh, and so we need uh, someone who can speak to an audience that uh, uh, Biden ultimately can't get to. Uh, him committing to a woman is a good thing, I believe, because that'll uh, speak to the times we are in now, and someone of color. I think it's definitely something uh, uh, you know. It's, it's showing that his administration is listening and attentive to what's going on. But now, um, and I'm gonna shut up so I can go ahead and toss to you, Tyrese. Uh, but I don't, I don't know who the person is. I'm not privy to those higher level conversations. I would love to see uh, uh, someone who can help him bring home a win because that's what we really need at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, no, um, and to be honest, you were kind of you know cutting kind of in and out at least for me, Anthony. So I didn't catch everything that you said, but what I did hear you say is that he needs to pick someone who uh, who you know the voters speak to, um, and not and someone who uh, who speaks to a voter base that he cannot necessarily reach. Um, so when I think about who the best VP pick would be. Um, well, who I liked, but I don't think that she's you know on the short list would be Stacey Abrams. I mean, it's like we see what she did in Georgia. Um, she nearly be, she should have uh you know beat uh, Governor Kemp if you know not for some you know shenanigans. Yeah, and I just think that she is uh, uh just she's just an amazing person, intelligent, um, and she energizes you know like so many voting groups, the young people, the progressives, everyone. It's like what she did in Georgia was just super amazing and that she almost won, uh, uh, that election was just so, was just so amazing. But, you know, as of now, you know, taking Stacey Abrams off the table, who I think would be the best VP pick, VP pick would be, would be, you know, Susan Rice. She was a former, uh, Uh, ambassador to the UN, she was a former um, uh, national security advisor. So, I mean, and when it comes to speaking to a uh, a voter group that Biden necessarily can't reach or doesn't energize, I wanna say is that, you know, she speaks to, you know, black voters and she energizes black voters. You know, we see Biden and we see what what he said today about the African American community not being as diverse as the Latino, as the, uh, Hispanic community. I mean, I, what I, what was that? And then we see him, you know, months ago, say something. Um, I think this was uh, leading up to the uh, Iowa caucus, where he was at an event and he said that poor kids deserve um, just as good as it of an education as white kids. And I'm just like, why would you say something like that? And I think well, black man. voters would, you know, I think black voters will hear that and be like, yo, this dude is crazy. He is tone deaf. So I think, you know, someone like Susan Rice, who has experience, who has experience with dealing with, you know, uh, 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 of foreign countries and who has experience with, you know, comb- combating uh, a pandemic. I think she was in office when they were trying to combat Ebola would definitely, definitely be a good VP v- pick for Biden.
1: Tyrese, I agree with you. I actually, she's, she's right at the top of my list. And I think underneath her, right, right underneath, I would throw in Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. I wasn't a big supporter of her as an option at the beginning. And I felt like, you know, this is all just pandemic talk. People hear her name and we run with it because it sounds good. And she got a little bossy um, down in Georgia. But but the more I thought about, the more I like that, right? We have this presidential candidate that a lot of more progressive people don't like and won't like and won't support over the next couple of years, even if they do vote for him. Um, and I think Keisha Lance Bottoms, to so many people might represent um, someone who will talk back to Joe and tell him, no, that's that's not going to work here, or, or at least at the very least expose the other side of the coin and not just kind of go along with this is what we're doing as a party or as a um, as an administration. I, I really do think she's got the pushback to, um, to, to keep him as close to on the right path is is, I think is right. Um, I also think that she's got the stuff to handle Pence on stage um, when it comes to debates. I think she, um, I just think she checks a lot of boxes in that regard. So right right after Rice, I'm I'm going for Lance Bottoms.
8: I can make a comment. Um, My comments were that thinking about Susan Rice. Um, I have heard her speak. I went to an an event where she spoke at, and I think that I really do like her. Um, My kind of concern there, just thought, is that she's very associated with the Obama administration. And so for the people that you're trying to pull from the Republican side, I think somehow distancing himself in some capacity from that just a little um would help pull those people but when they see her i think they're gonna be like well we're just repeating obama like he's just filling his you know whole house with obama people um and not that's a bad thing it's just a, a thought and then with um karen bass my thoughts with that is that you know we hadn't for a while like heard a lot of her or like And my thoughts are, is that we didn't really know her name. She wasn't a household name. And now that, you know, she's on the short list, there was those comments that she had made in Florida about Fidel Castro. And I think that that's that's a big swing state that maybe you're not sure you want to mess with. Um, And then uh, I was thinking about Kamala Harris. And I know the points, Rachel, that you just made about um, how Biden needs someone who's going to kind of push back on him and be like, no, you shouldn't be doing this. And I think the people think that Kamala will. Um, And with her, because she was, you know, up on stage, she was running for the presidency, that we've kind of, in a way, aired out a lot of the, like, little things that are going to come out about everyone else who wasn't in the spotlight to begin with. Um, And I, (laughs) I think that, I don't know, that's something to be Noteworthy of is that we kind of like have already pulled out some of her uh, skeletons in the closet, and we're not really sure what everyone else holds. So um, I don't know. I don't know that I definitely have a pick, but those are just my thoughts on some of the top contenders right now.
7: So uh, I know there was a question that was asked in the comments, and Anthony had said he wanted to reach it. So I'll just read the question and then shoot it back to Anthony which was, how do the panelists feel about the lack of legislation passed for COVID relief? Uh, Will that make a difference on how many people vote for Trump? And just thank you to Alicia for sending that.
4: Yeah, um, so, I mean, it's no secret that we're in a global pandemic right now um, and that people are severely hurting, right? Uh, Families are still trying to figure out uh, how they're gonna pay the rent uh, if they haven't been evicted already. Um, how are they going to, you know, take care of their folks in terms of feeding their kids or education's up in the air right now. We saw in Georgia earlier this week, uh, that, you know, folks went back to school and I think it was a second grade class and, you know, they immediately closed the school because a couple of students got COVID, you know, which is, you know, huge shocker there, right? We're not social distancing. We don't have masks on. All those classes are usually, uh you know, overpopulated. So there's small, small amounts of people, but well, large amounts of people in a small space, and so there's that's asking for the coronavirus to spread to post. Um, but as we look at legislative solutions, uh, the House has passed a number of bills, uh, the Heroes Act, uh, and you know we passed uh, parts of the Heroes Act. I'm thinking about uh, the housing uh, bill that Chairwoman Waters put out and has been gaining a lot of support and a lot of traction it passed the house again. And so, you know, pivoting that to what does that say about the larger narrative, right? If you're on the outside looking in, you see that the house has passed some bills that's going to give you another stimulus check, that's going to help you with evictions, that's going to do all these great things, but the Senate hasn't taken it up, right? And there's been, uh, and part of the reason why the Senate hasn't taken it up, is because the Trump administration has said, well, let's hold off on this. It doesn't do exactly what we want for businesses. It doesn't do exactly what we want in terms of giving people, you know, less money per month for, you know, paying for their expenses throughout this whole thing. And so that's definitely going to play into a factor because as we all know, folks are politically self-interested, right? I'm going to vote for the person who's going to help me out the most, you know, and so that that's, and it's starting to look a lot, you know, from the outside that, hey, maybe this Trump guy doesn't have my best interests at heart, even though he tweeted about it and he says in all his speeches, uh, and if you're not a certain demographic, you don't fit into the mold that he's catering to. And and so we're seeing that currently with legislation that's being passed, but also not being passed, which is the coronavirus relief. And we, we're still talking about this, you know, even now, because. People are still hurting. People are still dying, right? And there has been, uh, from a legislative standpoint, not enough done. And it seems like the conservatives are are holding that up, led by uh, an injunction uh, injunction with the the administration. But uh, happy for
6: other folks to chime in here and, and then give their thoughts as well. Great question, by the way. So Mike
7: still appears to be hopping in and out. Um, I know we just we just touched on this question. I just wanted to uh, allow D- uh, D- D- excuse me Dania to answer in response to the uh, VP pick real quick because she she couldn't get in the chat. She typed something, but I just want to let her say that.
3: Yes, thank you, Hunter. Um So I think that the best VP pick for Biden will um, kind of depend on who um, is expected to go out and vote. Um, in the election and who will actually have access, who attempts to go out and vote. Um, because I do think that there is um, this uh, sort of assumption that um, like communities of color and Black people aren't going out to vote when that is not true. Um, and especially in the Clinton election, um, you know, there were a large amount of white women who ended up voting for Trump. And so I, I think there's a common um, desire to um, pick someone who will pull in the Black um, um, voting base because it is such a powerful um, voting block. Um, And so obviously, I'm definitely pro Stacey Abrams. Um, And I also think that um, uh, Michelle Grisham from New Mexico would be um, a good pick for pulling in Um, the Black voting base and then also Hispanic voting base because Biden has been struggling a lot with that. Um, And then also considering that she's near New Mexico, um, it would be good because I've been seeing some um, fears that Arizona might turn out to be Wisconsin in this election that is like neglected. Um, And so those are definitely two of my personal picks, but um, especially given this ad um, kind of uh, messaging Biden as Super far left um, to the detriment of all of America. Um, I do think that it could be a little bit dangerous picking um, someone who would um, further isolate moderates who are um, who Trump's you know racial calls are appealing to in a in a um, small but important way. Um, and so, you know, prior to this sort of messaging, I would definitely say that Trump needs someone, you know, a woman and a, definitely a person of color and, if possible, a Black woman um, to kind of balance out um, his lack of appeal to those bases. Um, but unless uh, Biden can kind of re-message himself and um, continue to play the role of being the moderate that is pulling in those moderate voters, then he may need to go with um a VP who will kind of further pull in those moderates that we need to not vote for Trump in order to secure the election.
7: Yeah, um, so I just wanted to make sure we turn back to the other question as well about the lack of legislation. Um, I'll just share my own quick thoughts on that. Um, That again, for me, I I look at it just in terms of optics um, and I wonder how people who are uh, what someone might call just a diehard um, either Republican or Trump supporter might view with respect to um, seeing themselves, you know, in a position of I'm, I voted for Trump. He's this outsider. And it's actually still the politicians who are in Congress who are screwing this all up. Um, Cause I've, I've heard that conversation. I've heard, um, you know, basically anything that isn't coming from Trump is a politi- uh, politicalization of an issue. Um, I've heard that, uh, you know, tossed around in a few different circles that I try and keep an ear uh, to the ground for just to, to see what's going on. Um, so if anyone else wants to chime in on that, that would be good. I think we have one more question after this too.
8: I would just piggyback um, off of what Hunter said. I'm thinking about like here where I'm at, I'm in Kentucky and people, um, I don't think it's really changing their thoughts on Trump very much. I think we have a, currently we have a, a democrat as a governor and he has acted fantastically in my opinion and in a lot of people's opinion but this little stimulus bill has kind of been kind of fumbled a little bit in getting it out to people here and just because of the logistics of it so it has nothing to do with our governor but the fact that he's a democrat and the fact that they view it as coming from his office and the problems are coming from his office, then I think they're like, okay, more power behind Trump. And I think that that just goes to like the lack of informed, you know, of being informed about like what, how this process actually works. And then also it's like you have Democrats who are pushing for this, you know, new stimulus check to come out which is kind of what the people want, but then we're holding it up for political reasons, but but the people aren't seeing that part of it. They're just seeing it's not coming. Oh. So that's, those are my thoughts on that.
4: And Haley, I would agree with that completely because uh, a lot of what we already know about politics is how you spin a situation, right? Um, it, it's very easy for the Republicans to say, The Democrats, we're not passing their bill because it doesn't do enough for the small business owner who's struggling as well. And then the Democrats can easily turn around and say the Republicans aren't passing our bill because it doesn't do enough for people are getting evicted. Right. And it's how you spin that story in the cycle. And, And it's exactly what you're saying about, you know, how are they communicating what's happening to the base at large? What's the larger narrative? And how does this play into the larger narrative of C, we got to keep Trump in because these Democrats are, aren't playing ball? Or C, we got to get this guy out because he doesn't care about you? You know, like what's the larger narrative? And that's going to depend on where you're at, what's the political machine looking like in your state, your geography, and how well the communicators
6: are doing a good job of communicating what's actually happening.
7: Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of framing, uh, that's, that's for sure. Um, so there was, there's I'm just stepping in as uh, moderator because we've lost Mike. Um, but if he had one other question that he had presented to all of us, uh, that I want to, I'll, I'll, read and we can pass around. Um, and it has to do with asking for general reflections. Um, Trump had, uh, had been threatening lawsuits to block mail-in voting. I believe that the campaign has now sued Nevada over the plan to mail out ballots to all registered voters. Um, That's at least one that I've seen. Um, If anyone else would like to chime in on that, get some reflections, that'd be great.
1: I can jump in
3: on this. Um, So I think this answer ties in both with the relief bill and um, lack of a national response to the um, pandemic, and then also with um, this current attempt to just suppress votes is what it is. Um, I am interested in both civil rights and international law. And so I'm always looking at where has this happened again somewhere else around the world and what was the response to it. And um, what this current situation has made me think about is the French Revolution. Um, And what it makes me think about is how, how just before the revolution began, there was a lot of social, political, and civil unrest. And it was due to there being unequal voting power. Um, And so it was basically by class, you were more represented, had more voting access. And there were were also um, just lack of access to food, money, resources. Um, And so that's political power and then also resources. And I think right now, this is a very crucial moment in our time because um, what we're seeing is a constant shifting of the status quo. And um, typically I think those who um, want social change want a change in the status quo because that means you're shifting the laws, you're shifting the culture um, that has been rooted in white supremacy and racism. But right now we're seeing the exact opposite and we're seeing, it being further cemented. Um, And we already talked about in 2016, this sort of backlash to try to hold on to this, um, this culture and this safety net of white supremacy that um, benefits um, more than just white people and that causes, you know, other demographics to be complicit in it as well. Um, And so looking at this lawsuit, I think you have to kind of look at the bigger picture and see that What's happening happening right now isn't just one action that's isolated from a lot of different events. This is um, an act of war on an ideal, um, on progress towards equality. This is not just um, an action to stay in office. This is something that he is doing, but that is also being protected by um, those who are complicit in this um, in order to secure power and hold on to power. And so um, I think this kind of goes back to a previous point of why it's so important for those who are young to really get out and vote and to not become dismissive just because Biden may be too moderate or just because, especially like in the um, Clinton campaign, it looks like um, one of them may just be um, the lesser of two evils. Um, And it's very easy to you know, buy into that narrative. But what we're seeing is it's the difference between having the postal service shut down. Like it's having real life implications. Um, And I think that we're not using, I think the right language about what is going on. This is a war. It is, it hasn't been declared yet, but right now we are in a war. And if we don't get out and vote, it's taking away everything that we have worked so hard to build on during the civil rights movement. We already saw with Shelby um, County beholder that the the Voting Rights Act is being gutted or has been gutted. And so it's these little chips at the progress that has been made over the years that will end up making a difference for generations to come. Um, And so I just wanted to point out that this is like, this is a very important issue because it is a very obvious uh, form of voter suppression, but it's part of a bigger strategy and a bigger act of warfare on um, not just minorities, but on anyone who believes in equality, anyone who believes in ideals of love and expressing that through politics and expressing that through individualized actions and community organizing. Um, and so I think that in this election, what we haven't been seeing but that would be helpful is messaging around Um, these kind of ideals of trying to actually get equality and actually have um, a society that reflects love to combat this fear-mongering that Trump has been using to pull in all of his bases. Because this act of warfare on equality is not just harming minority groups. This is harming all of America.
1: I'd like to double down on what Denia said. Um, Just again, about going out to vote and and the importance of that. All of these suits that are either filed or are going to be filed soon are likely going to find their way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is very fragile right now um, in terms of the balance that we've stricken between more conservative and more liberal um, justices. And if people don't go out and vote in November, or if people do, and we end up with the same person in the White House that we have now, our Supreme court will vote in his favor when the time comes, our Supreme court will uphold whatever, um, you know, challenge to mail-in voting is put forward. So I think, I mean, my, my, my initial first and in flat out, like mail-in voting is legal, should be legal, should not be touched, should not be dealt with. It's the state's job to administrate that, not the federal government, um, but again, if we don't vote, we, we're likely to lose that, um, at least for the short term, if not for
7: many years. So I just wanted to piggyback off of uh, your comment, Rachel and um, Dania, about uh, especially what you just said, Rachel, that that's the state's job. And I touched on it earlier how I think we we're really looking at some interesting questions about uh, the federalist structure that we have in the relationship between the states and the federal government. Um, we've been we've been sitting in a. a I, I've, I've been perceiving that we've been in a space where there's been this conversation that's persisted for uh, a while about uh, states' rights and whether it's been used as a dog whistle or whether it's been used as a legitimate um, addressing of the structure that we do have as a country and trying to work effectively with that, um, you know, wherever that ends up landing is a really important question. And I'm, I'm actually uh, I feel the opposite way, Rachel, with respect to what the Supreme Court might do. Um, and, um, you know, I'll, I'll just respectfully disagree that I would I would just imagine they would have to land on the other side because this one seems so clear cut. The states can do what they want um, or the, the states are the ones who effectively are administering this voting process. Um, I would I would be really uh, I, I will eat my words. I'll write them on paper and uh, just just for the show. Um, but, yeah, I, I really feel that that that's um, a point where really local organization becomes really primary because we have the power to affect a lot at the national level, at the federal level, from the position of working with the states. And I think you know, this, this entire conversation, um, which you know, I'm very happy to take part of, has been framed around the national conversation. And sometimes we forget how the national and federal government can be, you know, we can push change up structurally from not only the, you know, the grassroots just in our community, but at the state level. And, you know, our state constitutions are where we should be digging in and understanding what's going on there and some of the dynamics and the structures that we're working with in figuring out how we can best engage in those areas in order to affect positive change in our community as well. Because if we can make something really successful in one state and demonstrate, you know, proof of concept, uh, there's nothing that stops that from being replicated or, or done again in a different state.
8: So I would just comment to say I'm going to take it in a different direction than what you guys have taken it in this far. Um, I really am honing in on the implications of what this means if we're saying no um, mail-in voting. Um, For me specifically, you know, and other people who were like college age, all of the young people who are going off to college and mailing in back to their home state or who have taken a new job in a different state and have moved you know we need to mail we start to mail our ballots in because we're not registered to vote in those states those people specifically aren't going to be counted in and i think but often and that's younger people who are having a lot of changes going on in their lives also i'm thinking about people who are being evicted right now right we we don't have any more um holds on on people being evicted, so all those people who would have an address to have their ballots mailed to, well, where are they going to go? You need an address to receive your ballot, and I think that that's that's very concerning, thinking about the people who are probably being evicted are, are poor people who have lost those part-time jobs or even people who thought that they were stable, but have lost their jobs because of COVID. And now the only option would be for you to go and stand in line at a polling place that may or may not exist anywhere close to you. Um, with you not having the way to get there, like all the things and all the problems that we have from Shelby, uh, beholder and are just coming back. And now we have no protections against, you know, those happenings, no state involvement to make sure that they do that. And here um, we had when we had our primary in Kentucky, they had a lot of mail-in, but they also had people showing up um, to the polls. And I had this discussion with someone who was saying, "Well, I got my mail-in ballot, everything was fine. If they didn't get the order theirs, they should go stand in line." And the thought was, Louisville, Kentucky had one polling place for like six million people. It was ridiculous, or six—I forget the figure. I'm sorry, but but the fact that there were so many people trying to go to one polling place is a problem. But then the the fact that people weren't educated, in my opinion, fully on how they would go about getting a mail-in ballot. Like you have older people who couldn't go online to say, oh, well, I'm staying home because of COVID because you have people that don't know how to work computers or don't have internet access. And this is a long tangent, but it's just to say that. You have to also factor in the the deficiencies amongst the problems that we have already with education and, and everything um, when thinking about how this, the consequences of not being able to mail in a ballot or not being able to go in person to vote.
0: Can I just interrupt and just say I love this panel. Thank you all so much. I am so sorry about getting out early. Out of all the times uh, the there was a power blockage on my block um, and I was just so lucky to have it happen around this time. But I, so, I'm just so happy and grateful that you just kept rolling with the punches and kept going. And I've just been enjoying this discussion so far, but just to weigh in a little
7: Mike, bit. Mike. Uh, thank you. Oh. <laughs> Say again, sorry, Chris. Mike, we're, we're trying to get, Tyrese has been itching for this comment. Oh. I asked if okay. I could yes. jump in. Yes. Go in. go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um,
2: I guess my chat is kind of you know messing up a bit, but I just want to just say two things. First, is that the suit was already filed um, in a in the district court of Nevada, and what uh, Trump and uh, the Republican Party is basically alleging is that uh, this bill, which allows you know for mail-in voting, is basically um, unconstitutional because it uh, it goes against the Elections Clause, and uh they also say that uh, it's a violation of the 14th amendment uh both claims in my opinion are frivolous and will basically just be struck down the district court might look at it and say this is you know just a silly lawsuit and i could send you guys the link to the uh, uh to the suit if you guys want but what i think is what's you know what's more what's most harmful it's not the suit itself, because the suit is just, you know, silly. But what this suit does, and what Trump's rhetoric is doing, is just weakening the faith that the American people uh, have in our system of government. And I think um, Mr. Foster said it earlier. Um, you know, Trump has said that he's not, not going to accept the results of the election. He's casting doubt on uh, 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 on mail-in voting so i mean those two things together plus more it's just you know it's 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 going to leave people uh doubting our system of government and if you look on the Brookings Institute they did, they have uh, done a couple of reports and i wrote an article about it this past semester um basically saying that democracy around the world is on a decline and uh the reason for it is because illegitimate leaders you know uh, they take office and they basically undermine democracy from within. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing today. You know, it's Trump attacking the freedom of the press, him saying that, you know, people who uh, uh, stop or, or disrespect our flag should get 10 years in prison. That goes against our constitution and our constitutional order. You know what I mean? Him sending federal troops into um, Oregon, I believe. You know what I mean? It's like, this guy is basically weakening our democracy from within. And if we don't do something about it, I fear for the future of our system of government. But the suit was already filed. I'll send it to you all if you want. I laughed.
0: Can I weigh uh, in? And Hunter, thank you so much for taking over the, <laughs> the moderator role. Um, in addition, in, in alignment with what Therese had mentioned in terms of you know the Equal Protection Clause. The Equal Protection Clause guarantees everyone who's a citizen full protection uh, of the rights that are yeah. entitled to those who are United States citizens. And that includes the right to vote. And so, you know, in accordance with what Therese said, I want to also plug in, keep in mind, Trump was casting doubt on the election four years ago. Um, if you remember, to as we were getting closer to November, he was saying that. If we lose, it's going to be, you know, because of you know people who are voting illegally, because of people who are not documented, because of all these different factors. So he was kind of creating a cushion because he did not expect to win. In my view, he did not expect to win the presidency. It was a shock not just to us but to him. And after reading books like *Fear* by Bob Woodward and other books, it kind of just confirms uh, that notion that Trump was not anticipating um, the results in November that actually took place. And so as we near, you know, November, as Dini had pointed out, you know, politics is a zero sum game. Somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to lose. And so for us to say, we're going to sit on the sidelines because we're not, we're not too enthusiastic about the choices that we have. They're two sides of the same coin. If we were actually to think critically, we'll see that's not, that's not the truth. There are underlying policies that both uh, standard bearers, will bring to the table if elected that are diametrically opposed in a lot of respects. And so we can't afford, at least I can't afford it, especially, you know, in light of the funeral of John Lewis that took place last week, you know, think of how many people who, uh, you know, fought, spent their whole life, dedicated their energy um, and their adult careers to ensuring the right to vote for, for everyone, not just people of color, but anyone who may be marginalized, anyone who may be feeling like they're in the opposite end of the stick, um, and so I can't, in good conscience, go ahead and be apathetic to the system. Because think about it: nobody anticipated Lyndon Johnson, a Southern Democrat from Texas, to sign the Civil Rights uh, Bill of 1964, of uh, the Voting Rights Act, you know, 65. So we have to be um, we have to be critical thinkers. We have to be vigilant because if we're not, the other side is. You know, somebody's going to get something they want out of this. Why not? Why not vote for the person that's more in alignment with, with your interests? And then once once they get, in, then we can fight about policy dis- disagreements. Then we can fight about them not taking, not going far enough in terms of certain liberal positions and things like that. But the first step is making sure that the guy gets in there first. Um, so those are my thoughts on the mail-in. Um, you know, voting dispute that's going on. But I, I appreciate so many the perspectives, the legal perspectives uh, that have been brought to the, to the table tonight, I, I really enjoy. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and conclude. I think that was the last segment we were gonna do. Um, but I just wanna again, thank you. This, this panel has been an amazing panel. You have risen to the occasion in light of technical difficulties tonight. And I just wanna thank each of you for the role you've played in making this panel um, an amazing one. Um, if you are interested in joining The Political Mike, please DM me, uh, send me an inbox, message me. I would love to have you on. Uh, we can set it up. Um, also, additionally, I've set up a YouTube channel. Go ahead and look up The Political Mike on YouTube. So this episode will be streamed on YouTube. And so anyone who wants to go back and rewatch this episode can can do so um, on Facebook Live or on YouTube. Uh, with, that being, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and thank each of the panelists, Hunter, Rachel, Haley, Tyrese, Dania, Anthony, thank you so much for being a part of this week's The Political Mic. Tune in next week. Next week, we're actually going to do a special edition of The Political Mic. This one is going to be different. <clears throat> we're going to be looking at Christianity and how Christianity can play into the role of social justice. So, I have some amazing panelists coming up um, who are going to be who are uh, pastors or members of the, theolo- uh, the field of theology um, and professors who are going to be sharing. Uh, their perspectives. Uh, we're not going to talk about particular people or parties. We're just going to talk about issues, and it's going to be great. With that being said, I just want to thank each of you, and I'm going to go ahead and call it a good night and sign off.
3: Thanks, Mike. Bye.
0: Thank you, Mike.
3: Thanks, Mike.